Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us here today in a very quiet Westminster as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. I'm Scott Challoner and today I'm joined by Fiona Orman-Tree. Now Fiona is a director at Fat Promotions, a website and online software systems designer. Um, Fiona, welcome. Great to have you with us on the programme today. Thank you, Scott. Nice to be here. Pleasure having you, Fiona. Now, um, this podcast first and foremost is all about the uh, the topic of leadership what does that word leader actually mean to you I think the word has never been more important in business than it is in the current climate because it's up to the leaders of business to really show uh, the team and the uh, those above us I think in the economy the decision makers just how important it is to keep going and look at positive aspects and opportunities and I think that's a leader's role first and foremost in any situation, is to highlight the positives and opportunities and gives everyone a, a bit of a mission and a purpose to follow. Someone said the other day to me, if you don't have work, have purpose. And I really like that. That stayed with me. So I'm sharing that today. Yes, and that's um, really interesting as well because um, good leadership is uh, very much under the microscope and very much being put to the test at the moment with the fallout of the uh, COVID-19 outbreak, uh, no less. Um, Drawing on your own experience and trying to navigate fat promotions through this, Fiona, do you have any advice for other business leaders who are facing difficult situations at the moment? I think the most important thing, which uh, we've all learned as as a country, as a nation, has been to take action. I think there's been a lot of people who've been waiting to see what happens and waiting to see what the changes are, waiting to see the outcome. And I personally feel they are the businesses and organizations who potentially could suffer the most. I think uh, it's important for small business in particular. We're a little more agile than the larger corporates. So I always liken it to um, a speedboat compared to a freighter. It takes them longer to turn and, and we might get there faster, but we're not quite so significant in the bigger scheme of things. But I think it's one of those things where we need to take action. So even if it's small actions, it's really important for, for business to uh, to do that at the moment and not just sit down, head down and hope for the best. It is um, really interesting that you uh, mentioned that, actually, because we have seen some very contrasting approaches from the world's leaders in response to this um, outbreak, of course. We've seen proactivity in China with Xi Jinping, for example, putting the country on lockdown quite quickly. Same with Giuseppe Conte in Italy. But it has taken us here in the UK much longer to bring in those stringent measures, as, of course, everybody's noticed. Um, There was money there that were procedures in place. But in many ways, as you said there, we were just waiting to see what happens, as it were. Um, So if we take that away from politics, politics and away from times of crisis there, Fiona. Um, Would you say that the proactive approach, getting in on top of things and controlling the situation is the approach to take in business? Absolutely. Because people want to follow a movement. They want to be part of something bigger than themselves. That's something I really believe. And, And it's something I see a lot in our local business community here in the southeast of England, is that it's not just about a job. It's not just about a, a wage check at the end of the month. It's about having purpose and, and being part of a bigger mission. And I think that's the key role for the leader in any organization to, to get that across, to convey that to people. Because if, particularly if you have talented pool of graduates or potential recruits to come into your business, they really want to know what are you offering them. And it's not just the Google effect of beanbags and slides and things like this. They, they want to know what's the, what's the purpose of the company? Where is the company going? You're more likely now to hear an applicant for a job ask the interviewer 
where do you see yourself in five years' time than the other way around as it used to be? Yes, absolutely. Because as you've essentially epitomised there, it's not just a one man or one woman show being a business leader, is it? It's very much about the team as well, more than anything else. It's a team effort. Very much so. And I think traditional thinking has been that to lead from from the the top rather than lead from the front. And, And now people are far more aware of the benefits and the powerful impact you can have in a truly collaborative organisation. I have a fantastic team working with me and they really help to pull me forward as much as I pull them because there's joint accountability. I'm quite happy for them to say to me, you haven't done your bit this month and we're doing ours. What are you doing? So I'm, I'm quite open to that. Absolutely. So when you're looking to uh, recruit team members um, at um, Fat Promotions, for example, Fiona, are you looking at qualities that would usually be associated with leadership figures being in these individuals. Are those the sorts of things that you're looking for, people who can essentially take charge and be self-motivated like that? Very much so. There's a, there's a popular term I heard recently, which is some um, intrapreneur, which is where you have people within your organisation who want to take um, that little bit of responsibility for a particular department or particular project, but it's not in a kind of, okay, that's your fault if it goes wrong way. That's the old view of responsibility. It's now accountability. So they want real pride in what they do, but they also want clarity of what's expected of them so they know to deliver. And that makes the biggest difference in organizations. When we're recruiting, we look for values like that in a person. We share our company values and we want people that those values appeal to and and who are going to pull in the same direction. It's um, really interesting that we talk about the qualities uh, within uh, good leaders there. And we've also talked about um, your leadership style um, as well, uh, Fiona. Um, are there any examples of individuals, either prominent individuals or people who aren't in the public eye, who've maybe had an influence on your own leadership style? Oh, that's an excellent question. I've worked with a number of business coaches all over the years. And uh, my company's been running 19 years just recently. And uh, that's that's one thing that I've always looked for in coaches in particular. When I'm working with somebody that closely and they, they're going to have an influence and, and hopefully a positive impact on the direction my business is taking, I'm definitely looking for people who match those sort of values. But as for those in the public eye, I think we all have a little bit of hero worship for the renegade, mm-hmm. I think. And sometimes we, we misdirect that hero worship in, in the wrong people. For example, there's not many who would say that um, Bill Gates was a renegade, whereas they would say that Steve Jobs was in, in his day. But when you look at what um, Bill Gates has achieved and the trailblazing he's done in our technical industry in particular, he really was light years ahead of his time. And I, I'm quite interested to see some new leaders coming up and, and showing that same devil may care, but also that they do care about the society and the impact that they have on it. Yeah, for sure. And um, if Bill Gates, for example, were to um, this afternoon go into the office at Fat Promotions, presuming everybody was there and address them, what sorts of things do you think he might actually say? Oh, gosh, I think it's quite interesting that he's the visionary um, which he didn't get a lot of credit for when, when he was um, within the Microsoft Corporation. And, and now he's stepped back. People are really seeing his vision. Mm. I would like to think that he would share with us, you know, it's not just about the work on your desk. It's not just about creating um, websites and online systems for, for companies, for charities, for public sector, for that sort of thing. It's about the impact it then has. It's that secondary impact on who does it benefit And that's what we're all about. Whenever we say to our clients, they say, I want this, that and the other. We say, well, who is it for? Who is it aimed at? How will it benefit them? 
because at the end of the day, that's what matters. That's what lights people up is actually having an impact on society as a whole, rather than just being in one little area of the Internet. Yes, absolutely. It's really interesting at uh, that point. Um, it's good that you've mentioned Bill Gates there as essentially a trailblazer figure. And then if we sort of bring that sort of area of discussion into what we discussed earlier about your team members and the sorts of qualities that you look for in future leaders, as it were, do you think those sorts of qualities are something that people are just born with? Do you think, for example, Bill Gates was born with those qualities? Or do you think that that's something that people can learn and develop throughout their career to become good leaders? I think the hunger to learn it, I believe it is intrinsic. I believe it's something that you are born with. It's a little bit of DNA somewhere, some little chromosome in the wrong place that just says, do you know what? What if we did it this way? What if we tried it the other way? What if we reframed this current situation? What would that turn out like? So that that little bit of imagination and, and it's an overused term, but that creative thinking to just think, what if? That's what makes the difference to a lot of people. And that's something that, that we do look for in, in uh, our recruitment in particular, because with our industry changing so quickly, the technology changes, there's an, a new operating system on an almost daily basis, there's a new device to, to deal with, and different ways that culturally the internet's being used. I mean, the current situation without the internet, really, there'd be a major economical disaster. Mm. But because we have, touch wood, access to good, strong internet and infrastructure in this country and globally as a whole, it's making a big difference. So, yeah, it's people who have that bigger vision. I'm not sure you can train that into somebody. If you can, I'd love that manual as to how you make that happen because that would be worth having. Absolutely. So it's people who come with the hunger, come with the motivation, but essentially it's the skills that they can learn going forward that's the important part. Exactly. You can train skills, you can train processes and systems, but if they don't have that that natural hunger for it, if they could just say the sort of person who, you know, I can eat, but they're not hungry, they're not going to work out long term. Yeah, it's a really interesting uh, way of looking at that, Fiona, really interesting. Um, I am conscious of uh, running out of time, but before we do uh, wrap things up, um, do give me an idea of what you imagine the next year will hold for yourself and for Fat Promotions and what you hope to achieve in that time beyond, of course, the uh, COVID-19 outbreak as well. Well, it's interesting you ask because it's something we've been revisiting as a team lately. We've been um, working remotely for the last two weeks. And for all, yes, it was bumpy the first couple of days as people adjust. It's something that more and more of, of my team are saying, you know what, actually, it's quite nice working from home. Whether that's a novelty that'll wear off, I think only time will tell. But uh, it's something we have struggled with um, living right on the coast of Southeast UK. We're based in Hastings in East Sussex. And we only have half that 360-degree circle around us mm. in which to recruit. And recruitment has been challenging. With the opportunity to now offer people a, a decent setup good infrastructure and good systems and processes to follow to work remotely, I think it will help not just us, but a lot of small businesses to expand over the coming year. Mm. It also means that for our clients, where we've been implementing online systems to help them continue to grow um, during this time, I think that's something people won't want to come back from. They will realize, well, hang on, maybe I don't need to do these processes manually. Maybe I don't need to be copying those spreadsheets from the office to my home laptop all the time. I can go for a cloud-based solution. I can access everything from there. And, of course, we are already positioned to deliver that as we have for many, many other customers. So it's all we live vicariously in my my organization. We, We succeed when our clients succeed. And that I can only see growing in the next 12 months. 
That's great because there are opportunities there, even in spite of what's going on. And uh, let's hope that businesses are in a position to seize upon those opportunities and really help make for a prosperous future once we start seeing that upward trajectory as well. Um, very much so um, it's been I have to say an absolute pleasure and very insightful having you on the uh, the programme today and I think it would be fantastic to even have you back on in a few months time just to look at this retrospectively and see how things have panned out so once again thank you so much for coming on speaking to myself and also discussing these issues for the benefit of the listeners thank you so much Scott really enjoyed talking to you today and I would love what happens in the next few months time that will be an interesting conversation Yes, it certainly will. Um, We now hand over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with England cricket legend Sir Andrew Strauss. Hello and welcome. I'm Jonathan White and today we are joined by Sir Andrew Strauss, former captain of the England cricket team and former director of cricket at the ECB. Sir Andrew, thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to be here. Thank you. The pleasure is all of ours. You know, and you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood for services to sport just last year. So congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, now, there have been ups and downs in the career, like any career, including public and private disagreements with certain individuals. And on that front, I think what everybody wants to know, have you finally forgiven Marcus Trescothic for giving you that stupid Lord Brockett nickname? <laughs> um, well, my recollection... Of was it wasn't Marcus Rescothi who gave me that nickname? Ah. It was actually Mark Butcher. Uh, He's but to blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at the mm. mo- at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, uh, thankfully, it didn't particularly <laughs> stick, other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station, because of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you only got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the yes. first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in a in an international career or sporting career, full stop. And, um, you know, I was wait, waiting patiently in the wings mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then... I've only got injured in the nets and there was my chance and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to uh, see your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance? Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost. I'd been, I was a Middlesex player, I was Mm. captain of Middlesex, all my focus was on helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever. And then a week later... I've scored a test century, which is something I'd always dreamed out literally all my life. And then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test. I mean, it was literally the dream. So, and then suddenly I started thinking, wow, hold on, potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails. So it was a real shock to the system. Um, But I suppose what I was grateful for was that I was relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 years Of of age I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think, mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think in those early years of your career, it's so important. I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people. And this can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business. Um 
to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness they were there for you? Uh, well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive um, mm. source of advice for me. So he was captain of Millsets bef- a couple of years beforehand and really helped m- me understand what I needed to do to get there. Um, but then I think on the day-to-day basis, my wife Ruth played a, a huge mm. role, you know, and just in terms of, because I, th- I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it and you think yes. international sport in that goldfish bowl that, you know, you're more important than you you were previously or that that whole world is the real world. And, uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world, nothing's changed other than mm-hmm. other people's perception of you. And you need that grounding. And again, that can be true of any uh, so many different areas of life. I think so, yeah. I, I mean, very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things, being with different people, sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international it's cricket. And itself. in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and, and, and you've got <laughs> other places to be, so <laughs> we can't do that, but... If I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that, but perhaps more importantly, um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the the pressure is like nothing else that I experienced before or after because, you know, I think it's easy to forget how how much of a holy grail the Ashes was mm. back then. You know, we hadn't won it for so long and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible Australian teams year after year. So, you know, th- the closer we got to it, the harder it became. Um, I remember Ashley Giles walking into the dressing room, for the f- I think it was in the final day of the series and I looked at him and he looked absolutely terrible, <laughs> like just white of a sheet, grey. He looked like aged about five years. I went, God, Charlie, you're not looking too good. And he went, yeah, it's not surprising. I haven't slept for eight weeks. <laughs> and I went, well, join the club. Quite. You know, and I think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors. And um, yeah, it, it's just an extraordinary thing. And uh, without doubt, the the highlight was, number one, drawing that game at the Oval yes. to make sure we, we, we won the Ashes. But also the day after, you know, that open top bus parade around London and to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble that they're just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something were all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing. I think that's such a key point now because there's there's so there were so many people back in two thousand five that may have not even given cricket a second glance and it put a whole new generation, especially of children and school kids, into loving that sport. And so beyond the actual competition itself what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished for, for absolutely uh, everything you say there is absolutely right like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation but probably more importantly it was the one and only time in my life that i got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating you know i felt like i'd really arrived in well a celebrity yes. <laughs> it only happened for that one night unfortunately but uh, i did ask for a highlight and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch 
uh, uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch at Trent Bridge was, uh, you know, you see a ball, you stick out your hand, and it goes in. I, I think um, my personal highlight was I scored a hundred in that fifth Test yes. match under real pressure, and that that was one that. You know, that, that wasn't a moment, that was a, a number of hours and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now, obviously, not that long later, uh, and you were lucky enough, you privileged, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become the focal point of criticism. Uh, you looked on, up to and relied upon to be strong, especially when the going gets tough. You become a leader in many senses of the word. Uh, during your time as captain, what qualities does one require to fulfill that role? Ha. Um, well, a fair amount of resilience for starters. Mm -hmm. You know, you're absolutely right. You, you know, I, I remember when I, I got the role, it, it did feel like the biggest sort of poison chalice of all time, and that you know, <laughs> yes. sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over. So th there was that sort of realization: this is going to be a tough thing to do, um, and you're going to have to dig pretty deep. But I think actually the most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying, okay, if I'm going to do this job, what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so you, th th suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that, that was a big part of it for me. Um, you know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership, I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. It's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those sort of situations. Um, and when managing a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be players when players, and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team. Well, I, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. You know, I, I think there, there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment. And uh, the job of a, the leadership or the management is to, tr to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So... You know, th there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the, the way they, they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, p perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. And so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, but, th th yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in a completely different path from the team's agenda. And, you know, if and when that happens, that, that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem, then you're not doing your but job. Absolutely. Um, and with, with all that in mind, actually, uh, and perhaps this is a bit of a mean question, but what advice would you give to others in a similar position, leading a team... Um, being looked up to, what would be the key advice you'd give to them and that you couldn't really do without it? Just generally about leading I, I a team? I think so, Okay, yes. uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is 
that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. Mm. And if, if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have. And I've definitely had many. Um, because they, they'll know your heart's in the right place and they, uh, they'll feel comforted. There'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or, some, or whatever it might, you might term to, to make sure that the, the team comes together when the going gets tough. If they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself, um, it doesn't matter how charismatic you might be. It doesn't matter you know, how gregarious and, and how um, impressive you might be as a person. They will be wary of you mm. and they will start looking after their own interests very quickly. Um, now, in 2015, obviously, you were appointed as director of the ECB. Uh, you took some pretty uh, major steps early on. Um, you brought in Trevor Bayliss as coach, was, or was brought in. Um, you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket. Now, in the abstract, what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain that you were able to bring over the job um okay so the first thing was we had this unbelievable opportunity of the world cup on home soil in yes. 2019 uh i was firstly i was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in world cups and this includes my time as captain we just kept it on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the all right mm. on the night and it never was um and so I definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 World Cup. I thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure. Um, and I knew in order to do that, we had to completely shift our perception of white ball cricket. Quite a radical shift from what we, we, what we were coming from. Yeah, but mm. the rest of the game had moved on. And yeah. the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially, but also in, in terms of players focus and interest yes. um and we had to move in fact we didn't have to move as times we need to get ahead of the time <laughs> so you know we had to completely shift out both our philosophy but also the way we played in order to do that um and i was very lucky uh having both trevor bayless and owen morgan who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through um and the second part of your question around what had the England captaincy sort of done to prepare me for the role? I, I think I was comfortable leading. I was I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players. But actually, I found it a very different challenge because you are so, so far removed from what's going on on the ground. Right. And so, you know, you're relying on other people to have to buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves mm. and often you know in different time zones in different parts of the world so that was that was a very new experience for me well i think the strategy paid off and uh, i don't know you but when watching that world cup final again as so many people did in this country it's once again it inspired another generation of uh, especially school kids who again might not have given cricket a second look who have now become Avid cricket fans. I know of some. It, and it, what, what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup, I had this vision in my mind of Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of 
you know, emotion that went with it. Mm. No one could have dreamt no. how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life. And for it to be the World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were Googling there and then what exactly the rules became. Because I yeah, well, so was, <laughs> was I, actually. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, now, Andrew, in your, in your wife's memory, you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become an inspiration to thousands, husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time, if you wouldn't mind, and you to explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and, and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well. You never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. Um, and so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die, um, we learned a lot in that process. And, and thankfully, we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know, this experience we'd all been through. And so after she died in December uh, 2018, uh, I came back and launched a foundation with two f focuses. Number one, to fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer. These mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers. Um, five to 7,000 people each year in this country are diagnosed with these. No one knows why they're getting them, um, but they're on the increase, and it's women young women that are affected more than men. Extraordinary so, numbers. Yeah, I mean, it, in the list of top 10 cancers, it's number eight. Rare forms right. of lung cancer, number eight. So it's not really rare, it's probably a misnomer, but it's, um, yeah, we're really lacking in funding and understanding. And then the second element, and probably this is in some ways more pressing, is um, to help uh, cancer, anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis to help them and their families prepare themselves for death mm. and so in order to do that we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other because if you do this well it should help the bereavement afterwards if you're well prepared for it it's not something people like to do i was very lucky that ruth wanted to do it um but also we have to have that debate about about the taboo of death and yes. you know effectively how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby, like how we're preparing you for the, how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death, even though we're all going to experience it in one shape, way, shape or form. And, um, you know, we, I think as a society we need to be better than that. We, we've come a long way in so many different areas and especially around mental health. And we can do better about death. There's no doubt about it. Well, I think if the, if the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken. Um, uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events later this year. So if you could tell us about some of those, that would be. Yeah. So the, uh, I mean, we've got a couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is a, a very inclusive. If you're thinking about 
think about a marathon, but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26. Sounds ideal. So we've got grandparents, we've got little kids, we've got people pushing prams so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds. Um, we've got the Red for Ruth Day at Lords again. So that was an incredible day for us it last year. You could, you, whether you were there or not, especially if you were there, I mean to say, but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day, what an extraordinary, I think it was the 15th of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway. Yes. And then f for us to have that extra element of the, the Red for Ruth Day and to see the the wave of support you know it's probably it was just i myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh, in a good way you know we felt so much uh, love and support there and then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the the funds raised and um we want to take it up a gear this year and, and make it more of a community thing not just the the day at lords um i even saw some of the stuffiest members of the mcc and you're wearing re uh, wearing red so what what an extraordinary thing yeah well a lot uh, of them <laughs> wear red trousers <laughs> anyway no, i think but um <laughs> no it, absolutely you know they, they were right behind us and um you know we, we really want that to be something that's embedded in in the english summer uh, just like the mcgrath foundation days yes. in, in sydney and australia well it's been a complete inspiration um and uh, i very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well absolutely. um before we go, as I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, though I should. Andrew, I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown um, that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well... So the 100 is the most important uh, step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. Right. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience, mm -hmm. and potentially a, a declining one over time, even though the blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get more general sports fans into cricket. Um, but more importantly, um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one day, one game a day over a six-week period, broadcasters will pay money for that. And therefore, what we're trying to do is re reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills. If you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world, we just can't rely on that money coming in mm. to fund the game. So we need to find another way of doing that um, I just think it's going to be an incredible success. I'm so excited about it. I know there are people that are worried about it, but in two or three years' time, um, you know, we're going to have our own uh, short-form tournament that will rival the Big Bash and will be moving towards the IPL. And those are, you know, those are two enormous events out there, and we can have our own version of that ourselves i can feel your enthusiasm for it as a as an essex fan i i'm still stumped as to i think i'm going to have to choose between either supporting a team based at the oval or a team based at lords I, I'll, I'll get over that but i'll, I'll yeah, have to do well it surely it's got to be the lords one right that sh sh of course yeah. <laughs> um Sanjay, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today thank you very much cheers this has been the leaders council podcast thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. 
The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.